everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Greg Foss. Greg, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Joe. Of course. So you always say, do the math. Greg, what exactly is the math? You know, um, in this great Bitcoin community, I've come to, uh, to meet some people that can lay things out quite succinctly. Um, and I've always been talking about the math of the debt, D-E-B-T spiral. The reality of the U.S. situation, which is uh, reflected in uh, most other developed G7 countries. And um, I have a good friend, James Lavish, who uh, I actually suggested, I'm not going to steal any of this thunder. I said, James, here's a thread I put on Twitter. But why don't you release a, a report that he does on a weekly basis on a Substack on the numbers of the U.S., uh, the reality of the U.S. debt spiral? Because the mathematics is as simply as this, the USA right now at historic low interest rates is barely collecting enough US tax revenues to cover its interest expense one times, 100%. Which means if interest rates rise, which they are likely to rise since the Fed is pushing short-term interest rates higher, the average funding rate for the USA is gonna increase and that will lead to higher interest expense, which will in turn lead to the organic growth of the U.S. debt outstanding just because of interest. And so James Lavish put out a real good, uh, you know, synopsis of this. And I'm just going to borrow. I had the same numbers, but we'll borrow from this uh, from James's report. The USA collects uh, four and change trillion dollars annually in tax revenues. And mind you, that has been augmented lately because of nice capital gains increases in stocks and assets. Um, they collect four, four trillion and they have what's called a, you know, they have their primary, uh, well, they have a fixed cost base that includes entitlements and military spending. And the combination of entitlements and military spending is in the area of 3.6 trillion, which leaves the balance of the tax revenues to pay for the interest expense. Now, the USA has $30 trillion of outstanding debt, Joe. And right now their average interest expense is about $400 billion annually, okay? But that's at historic lows. The average interest rate that they were paying, if you do 30 trillion divided by 400 billion, you know, is around 1%. But that's likely to rise to 3%, right? Because the Fed funds rate is, US 10 year rates are now, uh, 10 year tre uh, treasury yield rates are now 3%. And the shape of the yield curve and the funding, you know, the blended funding costs is going to cause interest expense to increase so that they will not even cover their interest obligations, expense obligations with the uh, residual tax revenues over entitlements and military spending. So it basically means that debt spiral is growing organically and can be quite severe if the Fed has to push rates significantly higher just because they're fighting inflation. It all leads to my opinion that Quantitative easing, QE infinity, is 
in the in the offing. There's no other way to solve the debt spiral. And I want to throw this out. It's important because there's other people doing great research. So I mentioned James Lavish, Luke Groman, absolutely on the same page. What a lot of people fail to appreciate, Joe, and this I spent my entire life trading credit, junk credit to be exact. If a corporation had the same financials as the USA, it would be rated triple C. Full stop. Full junk credit. Triple C rated. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Because triple C rated corporations do not cover their interest expense or cover their interest expense anywhere between one and one and a half times. That's the USA right there. And it's soon to be covering it less than one full turn. This is not a good situation. It's very scary. The rating agencies give the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, well, these guys do have the ability to tax and they do have the ability to print money. But nonetheless, it's my opinion that the credit risk of sovereign nations is severely under, as we know, in my opinion, is Bitcoin. Bitcoin can be thought of as insurance on misunderstood and we need a solution. The solution is sovereign debt spirals. It's not a pretty picture. I just saw some math on Canada, my home country, in total debt to their GDP. So this is a global phenomenon today that put Canada in the bottom of, well, in the, in the, you know, they were the top performer of the zombie nations in terms of adding. It's extremely dangerous because once confidence is lost in the sovereign debt of a nation, it quickly cascades right through the markets you know, right into corporate lending, into structured products, into uh, the commercial banks. And that's the beginning of the end, essentially. And I'm not predicting this is happening imminently, but it will absolutely happen over time. Hence the expression, it's only math. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I saw a, a tweet from, from Luke Roman the other day, uh, speaking of him. Uh, he, he basically mentioned that the idea of the Fed will likely pivot I, I guess uh, by the end it, of September. It's very important curious, to define pivot. Do you have like a, pivot, a, a deadline okay? or, or an idea of when you think the Fed will pivot or are you a little more uh, uncertain? So I need to start by defining what I think would be a pivot. And for a while they were talking about Fed funds reaching 4.5%. Right now, as you know, it's 2.5%. So essentially that would require another 200 basis points or 2% increases uh, in the Fed funds rate over the next meetings. And um, I don't believe they will get to that rate. So I believe they're already walking back expectations to get to that rate. I believe that in, in uh, uh, concert with a reduced inflation uh, target, it, well, excuse me, not reduced inflation target, an increased inflation target. So moving from a 2% annualized inflation to let's say 4 or 5% annualized inflation will allow them to seek cover and say, okay, mission accomplished, inflation's under control, and then quietly say, yeah, it's no longer 2% annualized, we're aiming for 4% annualized. So again, got to be careful. How do you define pivot? Um, I think I know how Luke is defining it. And it's aggressive to say that the Fed will uh, will pivot by September, I believe is aggressive. 
That being said, if we define pivot as a change of the inflation target, if we define pivot as saying, okay, we're not going to get to 4.5%, we'll probably get to 35 maybe 4%, yeah, I think we're in the process of that. I think if you dissect the uh, some of the language from some of the governors, uh, it, it's pointing to that. And in fact, yesterday, I'm not a huge fan of watching CNBC anymore, but I used to watch it religiously as a trader on Wall Street. And uh, I, I, I sometimes tune into it again. And there happened to be a guy on TV yesterday saying exactly that same thing. Now, he was an equity guy. And uh, I, I tend to, you know, give less credence to the equity analyst than the credit analyst. That's just my bias. But still, the, me the, the message is getting out there. The, there was a Chicago white paper that was in introduced at Jackson Hole uh, just recently, the Jackson Hole uh, uh, Summit. And it basically said the Fed has a choice. Accept inflation or global depression, one or the other. And so Luke is in that category, I believe, in that outcome as well. And if you look historically, the Fed has always succumbed to a taper tantrum. There's an old trading adage, uh, three hikes and a stumble. And we're experiencing the stumble right now. Uh, global risk assets are balancing on the head of a pin. And uh, if you lose confidence in the markets, you'll argue that the Fed has, you know, they, they have two distinct mandates. One is full employment and the other one is control inflation. Now that in itself are two, you know, those things are somewhat uh, uh, working at odds. But the third one is financial stability. If the U.S. Treasury market starts to seize up because bid offer spreads widen and uh, confidence in the U.S. Treasury as a quote unquote reserve asset starts to wane, I think, uh, you know, I think you'll see the Fed have to uh, to understand the pure math of it. Yes, we will have to accept inflation. Yes, it's going to be a reality going forward. There was actually a Wall Street Journal article saying that, uh, and Wall Street Journal tends to be the leaky, uh, you know, that's how the Fed leaks out their, their case. So, so many things to me point to the pivot is in progress. That being said, I have never met a group of, you know, uh, poor poker players in my whole life that probably are getting their back up a little and like, oh, they think I'm bluffing, eh? They think I'm bluffing. Well, I'm going to show them I'm not bluffing. And now all, all of a sudden, emerging markets continue to crater because of the strong U.S. dollar. And it's circular and very dangerous, Joe. It's uh, Luke Roman's an amazing analyst. I like his work. That being said, we are dealing with, there's math, and then we're dealing with illogical human beings who perhaps should not be in a risk chair. I mean, that's my biggest beef with the with uh, Federal Reserve Powell, uh, Chairman. He has uh, never sat in a risk chair. Like, he's never done this. He's never seen what happens when markets unravel. The Fed is painted into a corner when confidence is gone. And, uh, you know, you can uh, talk a big game, and then you talk yourself into a corner. I personally believe... How long, though, and are they the stubborn child? I don't know, and this is why it's dangerous. Absolutely. Since you're up in uh, Canada, I want to ask you about something that you know happened a little while back, um, but it hasn't been touched on recently, the Canadian truckers. I think like the freezing of the Canadian trucker bank accounts was kind of like a, a great opportunity for, for massive growth in Bitcoin adoption in Canada. And with you up there, did you see that actually happen, happen or was it kind of underwhelming? Well, okay, so to be clear, I'm lucky to be uh, in the fine state of Maine right now, uh, so New England. Uh, but yes, I am Canadian. 
Uh, I believe it was a uh, let's call it a, uh, a seminal event in uh, in in uh, the life of Canada as well as um, uh, the Bitcoin adoption process. Now, if you had asked me, and I I played this game, I didn't play this game, but I've stated it in other in other podcasts. If you had asked me uh, three years ago. What is the chance that the Canadian government would freeze bank accounts? I would have said, yeah, okay, it's not impossible. But, you know, we're still a fairly free country. I'm going to say, tw- and, and by the way, freeze bank accounts over a period of the next 20 years. So starting three years ago, over that 20-year period, would have, would have been the, pro- uh, the chance that Canadian government would freeze bank accounts. I would have said, okay, yeah, not zero. Yeah, 20% over a 20-year period, but not high. And yet three years later, with 100% certainty, they froze bank accounts. And it was very scary because I knew people who got their bank accounts frozen. Um, I was named in a few newspapers along with Jeff Booth as being supporters of the Canadian uh, truckers convoy. Uh, we had, in fact, endorsed the, uh, the, fund, uh, the fundraise using the tally coin. Uh, and, you know, it became... A little scary because when you have your assets tied up, uh, your net worth tied up in uh, the Canadian financial institutions, and you're worried that they are going to freeze it, you're you know it it, it sends up a red uh, a flag. And while we saw some accounts get frozen, and there now there have been repercussions and some mea culpas, but the truth is it happened. And yes, it did get some uh, some uh, press. The Bitcoin uh, angle got some press, but true to form, the Canadian press, uh, you know, made it look like Bitcoin was the bad guy. Oh, my gosh. Bitcoin is uh, allowing these truckers to get funded. And I want to stress, Joe, that I wasn't anti-vax per se. I'm just pro-freedom. I just want to see Canada remain a free country, citizens allowed to express their points of view peacefully. And yeah, there was a lot of adoption amongst the, certainly the truckers. Uh, Certainly it made headlines. It got people thinking. I'll tell you what though, it probably got more press in the United States than it did in Canada. And rightly so, because if it could happen in Canada, I don't want to predict it will happen in the US, but it certainly increases the odds that it could happen in the United States as well. Yeah, scary times. And and thankfully, you know, Bitcoin exists as this freedom technology that can, you know, empower individuals and, and not necessarily put power into the hands of a small, small select group of people. That's the, that's the breed, uh, you know, Bitcoin is freedom money and, uh, Bitcoin is freedom. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, now that being said, we are a community that is up against some established deep pocketed and some would call nefarious counterparts uh, across the world. Um, I believe in the long run, Bitcoin will win, but I also have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that there are people who will do everything that they can to stifle the progress of Bitcoin, uh, including probably the Prime Minister of Canada, who has you know, just made some uh, comments recently about uh, He's blaming uh, everything on climate on climate change, right? So he just recently blamed uh, the rise in uh, civil civil unrest in Canada on climate change. I mean, the narrative just becomes so 
it seems like it's so scripted, but there's enough people that still get brainwashed by mainstream media. Uh, and the Canadian mainstream media was kowtowing to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, the po- political opposition to the, to the truckers. And a lot of people believed it was fine to freeze bank accounts. So, you know, pushing and pulling uh, over long term, though, I believe it was an event that will uh, show the advantage of Bitcoin. And if I could add one thing, uh, my good friend Jeff Booth, who I already mentioned, he happened to be at the Freedom, uh, the Oslo Freedom Forum. And there was a young lady from the Ukraine that came up to him and thanked him for being involved in the trucker convoy because she said it warned them, essentially, or uh, allowed them to start funding uh, some war relief efforts through a tally coin uh, uh, platform rather than through GoFundMe. And that's, uh, she said, we were able to get uh, life-saving uh, uh, resources to the citizens without friction, without being blocked by the various uh, uh, funding platforms, etc. And you know what? She actually said, I believe it saved lives. She said that to Jeff Booth. I am paraphrasing a little bit, but there you go. The experience in Canada got translated to the Ukraine. And hopefully, in my opinion, uh, I believe that that it helped to, you know, to save some lives. I do honestly believe that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Switching gears a little bit. What are your thoughts on the whole quote unquote, get on zero thesis, meaning hold zero dollars in all Bitcoin. I personally think it's fairly dumb and, and foolish. Um, I think it puts you in a weak position on, on massive drawdowns and it kind of forces you, someone else to be the buyer of last resort. What do you think? Yeah, you know what? I guess that's the first time uh, I've heard that expression, get on zero. I always thought it was a misnomer. Uh, you know, I know what get off zero means, and that's how I like to manage risk with the with respect to, uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, and I've made this fairly public. Um, I firstly am not 100% exposed to Bitcoin, and shame on me, but that's never how I've managed risk. And then secondly, and most importantly, with the asymmetry of the return distribution of Bitcoin, meaning the asymmetric upside, you actually don't have to be all in in order to participate in a generational wealth uh, opportunity. And so I have never actually advocated being 100% in Bitcoin. That being said, I understand the conviction. Uh, But you know what? I own a basket of hard assets that includes Bitcoin as my highest weighting of the hard asset category. But I also own other hard assets. And, and that's just the way I've always managed risk. And um, gold, for example, is not Bitcoin's enemy. In fact, gold and Bitcoin are so closely joined at the, at the hip in terms of uh, why they exist uh, to hedge against central bank shenanigans. Uh, I think that it's natural that gold bugs would gravitate to Bitcoin. Uh, they already understand the uh, the fiat Ponzi. Everybody who understands gold understands the fiat Ponzi. And gold is only $10 trillion. I mean, we need to focus on the bond guys, okay? The credit guys, the people that are funding the fiat Ponzi. And that is a 400 trillion dollar pool of assets that should allocate a portion of that pool to Bitcoin. Again, the world 
not there are no asset managers in the world that are 100% exposed to any one asset class. There are individuals that are, and that's fine. That's their prerogative. But the big money will never be 100% exposed to any asset. I've always managed risk on that basis. Uh, I own equities. The only thing I own zero of is bonds. And given that I traded bonds for 35 years, this is the first time in my life I have zero exposure to bonds. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I'm on zero in the bond allocation. But if you own zero in Bitcoin, you're taking an extreme amount of risk. And then when the boys and ladies say, get on zero, meaning get on zero cash 100% to Bitcoin, I think you're going a little too far to the tail risk side because, yeah, markets are volatile. We are on the head of a pin and the Wall Street algos are still trading Bitcoin as a risk asset, okay? They haven't made the... Uh, you know, there haven't been enough senior people in in the analysis team to say, hey, you know what? Bitcoin isn't a risk asset. It's actually insurance. It's the opposite of a risk asset. But until that narrative catches on, yeah, you have to play it like you see it. Don't trade the book you want. Trade the book you have. And right now, Bitcoin is being traded as a risk asset. Full stop. I think that'll change over time. But until it does... I need to keep powder dry, allocated to other assets. If you wanna, if you wanna call out an asset, my choice is calling out bonds. Bonds are a fiat contract. Bonds are a fiat contract programmed to debase. That also is pure math. And bonds are what funds the fiat Ponzi. So, you know, maybe we'll take that expression, get on zero, uh, get on zero bonds, okay? Uh, that should be, for a lot of the population of the world. And you'll say, well, we always need to hold some bonds. I'll say, okay, well, at least get out of some of your bonds and allocate that portion to Bitcoin uh, because the 60-40 portfolio is dead. 60% uh, equities, 40% bonds. That 40% that's in bonds is mathematically programmed to debase as well as bonds, as you know, perform very poorly in rising interest rate environments. So there's not a lot there for the bond guys, in my opinion. Now you'll get guys like Raul Paul who are out there saying, you got to trade bonds, you got to trade bonds. Well, so far, unfortunately, he's been wrong. And he he, he announced, he, he didn't announce, he, he said a mea culpa. But please understand that bonds, the 10-year return on a bond over the next 10 years on the U.S. Treasury will be 3%. That's the math. If you buy it today at 3% yield, that's the yield you're going to get over the next 10 years. You're going to say, well, no, I'm the world's greatest bond trader. I'm going to trade it when yields go from 3% down to 2%. Then I'm going to sell all my bonds. Well, if you look at historical results, that never works. They return on the bond index over a period of over the term of maturity of the bond is exactly equal to the yield on the bonds, less trading commissions. You gotta look at these re these these uh, uh, results because that's what a bond is. It's not subjective at all. They either pay the coupon or they don't. And if they don't pay the coupon, you've made a horrible investment because you're getting 40 cents on the dollar back when you invested 100 cents. You know, that's the average uh, return. Uh, no, sorry, the average restructured price of bonds. So. I, I just can't see it. I don't know how to make the math work. Um, and there's just so much, so many assets allocated to the bond uh, 
uh, silo. That's where I think the sweet spot is for, for anybody looking to diversify risk. You take it out of your bond portfolio, you put it in to Bitcoin and other hard assets and equities. Yeah, look, equities at least have upside because they are not contractual. Yeah, they'll fall down, but they also have cash flows that can grow. Uh, that is a subjective or a non-contractual return. So I love Bitcoiners. Don't get me wrong, Joe. Like, and, and, you know, the guys are doing some great work, the young guys at your company and, you know, some of the other young, young guys out there. But what they got to understand is, and, and I'm not saying anybody is, you know, in, in your chair or whatever is saying 100% Bitcoin, but there are a lot of influential guys that say it's Bitcoin or nothing. And, well, I like their conviction, but the, ri the world risk is just not managed that way. It is just not, and it never will be managed that way at any large money institution. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I fully agree that I think holding, you know, 100% of your net worth in, in Bitcoin is, is foolish for sure. And I also agree that holding, you know, any form of long duration bonds for a long time horizon is also extremely foolish. <laughs> Good. Um, what is your, you know, you said you hold some, some equities too. I'm just curious, do you have a specific segment of equities that you really like right now like are you just general like s p 500 type guy or do you have like oh yeah no 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 so okay yeah so yeah you bring up a good point and here's something one of my pet peeves okay uh people who own the s p 500 as equity and exposure also own western union and i'm just going to pull out western union to pick on western union okay but plenty of etfs also own bed bath and beyond common stock and when the common stock of a company is trading at inflated values, when the bond price, the bond prices of the same company are trading at distressed levels, meaning 30 cents on the dollar, something is wrong. And it's usually the equity valuation. Yet if you own an ETF that owns Bed Bath & Beyond, you're, you're part of the problem, inefficient market pricing. So, but let's get back to Western Union. Western Union has a weighting in the S&P 500. I think Western Union is going the way of Blockbuster. But if you own Western U oh sorry, if you own SPY, you own a piece of Western Union, a small portion of the index, but still greater than zero. So I own individual equities. I actively manage it. It's not a passive stake. Uh, what do I like right now? I actually like gold miners. You know, I mean that's an equity with a correlation to gold, another hard asset. Trading at extremely cheap cash flow, free cash flow multiples, like extremely cheap, meaning you get your money back in three years or less. Um, these are just, you know, these are assets that have been shed traditionally over time and people have gravitated to the FANG stocks. You know that uh, Apple and Tesla account for over 10% of the S&P, just those two stocks. Like, oh my God, right? Now, I like Elon Musk and everything, but let's be clear. I mean, Tesla definitely has a speculative element to it. Apple, everyone runs to it because it's so big, everyone has to own it. So there has to always be a bid to Apple stock. But, you know, some of these valuations do not make sense to me. So I don't own them. I used to be short a lot of this stuff because I was a hedge fund manager. Now I don't typically mess around with the short in the short arena so much uh, just because I'm not 24-7 on a... You know, I say 24-7, but when you trade risk, you generally are on 24-7. Even though the markets are closed, you're still thinking about your book. Um, 
all of this leads to, uh, yeah, there's segments of the equity market that I think are cheap. Uh, I am not bullish overall on equities. In fact, I reflect the viewpoints of a lot of the guys out there that are saying risk assets are overpriced and at risk of a major correction. Uh, I don't have confidence that, uh, you know, the powers that be uh, see the world through the right lens. I don't think if if Powell truly understood the math of the debt spiral, um, the right thing for him to do would be to come out and admit it. But I suppose, you know, he doesn't want to go down in history as the one that admitted that the, the USA is a horrible credit. That being said, it's the best crack house on a crack street, okay? The USA will be the last country to fail. But it doesn't make it a great credit. It's just the best crack house on a crack street, right? Definitely. I'm curious from a, a long-term perspective, do you think Bitcoin will eventually become this unit of account and medium of exchange for a majority of the world? Or will we always still be using some sort of like IOU type technology? You know, it's a great question. I firstly believe that Bitcoin will become the global reserve asset, not necessarily the global reserve medium of exchange. Um, the reason is that I think U.S. Treasuries are on their, are on their way out and that need to have a need to re, be replaced by a global reserve asset that's scarce, decentralized, hence Bitcoin. More importantly, I think there will be a day that uh, Bitcoin is used to price global energy. I think the correlation between Bitcoin and energy prices is natural. I get in trouble with some physicists that say, when I say the Michael Saylor uh, adage, well, Bitcoin is digital energy. I think the physicists, the pure physicists take it too seriously. But as a guy who's, you know, firstly an engineer and secondly, thinks of energy and money, store of value of money is a reflection of your work energy, the energy you put into accumulating a store of value. It, it makes sense to me that, Natural resource energy should be priced in a form of money that I view as having an energy component, okay? I think Putin feels the same way. Now, I'm not a fan of what Putin's doing, but I tell you, he's not a fan of having his bank accounts frozen when the U.S. Treasury res uh, restricted his access to, uh, uh, or the SWIFT system restricted his access to his U.S. Treasury reserves, right? So I think Bitcoin will become a global reserve asset, and that will be accelerated as the world moves to pricing oil and natural gas in Bitcoin rather than the U.S. dollar. When that happens, it's possible Bitcoin claims a large portion of the total addressable market of global financial assets is why I have a price target on Bitcoin that's, you know, some people would say it's astronomically high relative to where it currently trades. And I say, that's fine. It's just a, an expected value type of calculation. But yes, to be clear, Reserve asset, Bitcoin. Global reserve currency, we still need fiat. We still need the ability to do international trade using, you know, non-barter, using currency as the means of uh, uh, transaction. One half of the transaction, the other side is product, right? But you don't trade product for tr product, I always say. I don't want to go back to a world where you have to trade cows for chickens right what's the right exchange rate for cows versus chickens and that's what the world uh, benefits from from currency but currency is your checking account and bitcoin is your savings account yep i 
Yeah, I agree. Definitely, Bitcoin is is your savings account. Once Bitcoin uh, becomes this this treasury reserve asset, do you envision the world to take on like our individuals or entities within the world to take on Bitcoin denominated debt, or do you think they'll still be using? I guess you think generally they'll still be using some other form of fiat type currency that debt will be denominated in. It's a process, right, Joe? Um... You have, uh, when you do a network transfer, let's say you're switching a operating system at work from iOS to, uh, or MS-DOS to iOS, let's say. On a Sunday night, you don't just come in and turn off your MS-DOS network and hope that iOS is running uh, bug-free the next day. You, you, you run the two networks in parallel for a while. Uh, so that you're able to uh, ensure that, you know, there aren't any uh, catastrophic bugs. I believe that's what's happening with Bitcoin right now, that it's a network that's being run in parallel. Uh, and that it's not formally, you know, there's no uh, huge central bank that's uh, advocating that. I just think it's happening. But I think there will be a time where they realize the gig is up and that they will have to run a parallel network where you have a global reserve currency could be the U.S. dollar, and it would be great if the U.S.A. Uh, um, embraced Bitcoin. I think Jason Lowry uh, is out there with a very um, moving thesis on uh, on that front. Uh, but that being said, there will be two systems, a process where there is lending taking place in each. Uh, and over time, it'll probably gravitate more towards Bitcoin as being the collateral the purest form of collateral that collateralizes fiat-based loans, potentially. Uh, but over time, I think there will be, and this is my hope, it's an orderly transformation. And during the orderly transformation, the USA maintains its global reserve currency status and Bitcoin moves to the reserve asset status across the world. Savings account, checking account, how do you borrow? I think you'd be able to borrow in both. What is the pristine form of collateral, though? Bitcoin. Yeah, I definitely agree that, um, you know, Bitcoin is this unique, great form of, of collateral. And it'll be, a, you know, it is and it will continue to be a, a great savings technology. How critical do you think it is for, for Bitcoin to be successful for individuals or entities to hold their own Bitcoin private keys? Or do you think that's not necessarily that big of a deal? I believe holding your keys is uh, ultimately uh, extremely important. Uh, that being said, there's a process to get people down that road too. Uh, listen, uh, my dad, who has passed away, but he went through his entire life. He never had a loan from a financial institution his entire life. I finally convinced him to get a credit card in his 70s, okay? And I guess... All I will say is it's a process with generations. I mean, you know, my dad would never have been comfortable holding his own keys. He owned stocks, and therefore if he bought stocks that had exposure to Bitcoin, uh, that's better than having no exposure to Bitcoin at all because he's not comfortable holding his own keys, okay? So it, it really applies across generations. Now, that being said, young kids who grow up with an iPhone who are so comfortable with an iPhone, they live with their iPhone, and they have their entire life on their iPhone, uh, is it going to be comfortable for them to have their own keys? Yeah, but you see what I'm saying is like, old guys like me, when I have a problem with my iPhone, 
I don't try and fix it. I give it to my kids. I say, hey, guys, can you help me out? I have no idea how this thing works. Can you just help me out? So for a guy like me, uh, you know, I own Bitcoin ETFs. I'm also based in Canada where ETFs, uh, spot ETFs are a reality. And you can put those spot ETFs into tax-advantaged investing funds. So you get a tax advantage in doing so. I know it's not the ideal solution from not your keys, not your Bitcoin. But that being said, there are financial incentives and ease of investment incentives that allow old fat white guys like me. And it doesn't have to be old and fat and white. But the truth is that's, you know, what I am. And that's where a lot of the uh, net worth of the world lives in people that are, uh, you know, older and uh, put, you know, between their 50s and 70s. And those people aren't as comfortable with the technology side of it as the young kids. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's you know, has been and it will, will continue to be a, a process. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that you probably don't normally get, but what is your long-term bear case for Bitcoin? Like, what could go wrong? You know what goes wrong is that the price remains lower for longer and people lose confidence in it as a uh, transitory asset that becomes insurance, okay? Well, if it's insurance and I believe it's insurance, how come the price isn't reflecting it, Foss? And I'll say, yeah, you know, markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Um, that was, I think, a Greenspan uh, comment, but apply it to Bitcoin. There are a lot of people that don't want Bitcoin to succeed. Imagine if there's, uh, this is the, you know, the um, uh, theorist in me, you know, the, you know, the black, not black swan theorist, but the, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the word when you're, uh, you're out there and you're pressing, oh, you know, the government's always against you. Like the a government's conspiracy always, theorist? Conspiracy a little bit. Let's call it conspiracy okay. theory. The, the conspiracy theorist in me is, what if the government is shorting uh, cash-settled Bitcoin futures to suppress the price and then printing money to cover any losses in that trade? Is that a possibility? Yeah, 100% it's a possibility. Are they doing it? I don't think they are, but it's not out of the realm of possibilities that it could happen. And so then you, you get the confidence of the Bitcoin community over time. We're humans, and if we don't see... Uh, you know, and I'm not talking everybody because there's a lot of the Bitcoin community that say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. But the truth is there's a lot of others that need to see financial performance of Bitcoin uh, because they have a lot of their savings in it. Well, if they start losing confidence because the price doesn't result in number go up, right? Number go up technology is there, but number go up is open for manipulation and all these other things. I see that as a distinct bear case where people just give up hope now the horrible thing is if you give up hope in bitcoin and bitcoin was your hope because we realize how screwed up the fiat ponzi is that becomes self-fulfilling right then you get all these dejected uh people in society and that feeds the doom loop so uh joe i i really hope it doesn't happen i will tell you that having lived in risk assets my whole life uh, risk happens fast, and the solution always takes a long time to uh, 
to filter out through the process. So there'll be ups and downs. Uh, I really wish that people would understand that Bitcoin is still only 13 years old. I don't want to fast forward 13 years in my own life because, you know, I'm fairly old as it is. I don't want my life to fast forward, but let's give it another 13 years and see where it really is. It is my belief that it is the only solution to the Fiat Ponzi, uh, but there's plenty of Fiat people that want their Fiat Ponzi to continue and would be incented to try and, you know, let's say re suppress the price of Bitcoin over time so that the followers lose their conviction. Yeah. Um, one, more, one last question on, I guess, a more positive note. Um, why are you personally so active in the Bitcoin community? Like, why do you talk publicly about it? Well, you know, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I'm active because I care. Uh, I guess I just have to say this. Look, I, uh, I, I was a active participant in the Fiat Ponzi for 30-ish years, okay? Uh, I, I got paid as an uh, uh, investment dealer trader. Uh, when I was on what's called the sell side of the street, then I moved to the buy side of the street, being a client of the street. And that's where I worked at two different hedge funds. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was well paid to sit in those chairs. Now, they're actually horrible chairs to sit in because your life revolves around every position that you're sitting in that chair holding. I often say, you know, there were times I went with to a movie on the weekend with my wife and I didn't even listen to the movie i was just thinking about some stupid position i had in my trading book and it was ruining my life but nonetheless you get well paid for it um i knew the fiat ponzi existed i didn't know the solution i was not sold on gold uh that being said when i first was introduced to bitcoin i thought it was a ponzi itself it had to be because that's what the press was telling me but i did research and when I did the research, I realized how beautiful a solution it was. And I think what I have is experience that'll allow people to accept, hey, he thought it was a Ponzi at the beginning too until he actually did research. And I'm trying to promote the research angle to it, firstly. And then secondly, and this is really more important, I got three kids, Joe, and I feel like an absolute schmuck that I'm pulling forward gains at the expense of my children because our generation is too soft to pay our own debts to face down the problems that we have created so i'm out there trying to promote a solution that i believe is win-win i don't want the usa to fail a lot of people will say foss is out there saying the usa is in a debt spiral it is it's not because of me i'm just pointing it out and we need to tell the truth why? For our kids. I've lived it. I've sat in a wrist chair. You didn't learn this in school. They don't teach you this in school because if they did, nobody would invest in the system because they'd realize, oh my God, the system is a Ponzi. So USA survives. I want the USA to survive because it is the last bastion of freedom. Canada, good friend of the USA, but boy, are we moving in the wrong direction on certain fronts. So I'm out there trying to promote the only solution I see to freedom, to all the principles that America was built on, and hopefully secure a better future for my children than the world I got brought into. 
And unfortunately, right now, I'm leaving the world in a lot worse spot than when I first came into the world. Yeah, well, you know, thank you for all of the work that you've done, you know, for the Bitcoin community. I'm sure many other people think the same. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Is there anywhere that you want listeners to go after this? Do you have, you know, I know you have Twitter, but do you have anything else? You know, I'm really keen on a platform that I'm involved in called Looking Glass Education. Okay, so lookingglasseducation.com is a nonprofit platform for free education around the world, teaching the truth about finance, teaching the truth about the current system, and teaching the solution, which is Bitcoin. Uh, it's been translated into 18 different languages already. Uh, it's being embraced by South American countries considering bringing it into their school curriculum. So I'm really proud of that. So that's lookingglasseducation.com. The Twitter handle for that is lookingglassedu. So at lookingglassedu. And you know why I'm proud of that is because it's being run by young kids like yourself. Joe, I really love the work that Will Clement does. I love the work. And by the way, like how old is he again? Like, you know, less than half my age. Like, can you believe that he knows everything he knows and has done the research and he's half of my age? I didn't know the stuff he, he knew until I was, you know, 45 years old, let alone 21 or however old he is, right? So keep doing what you guys are doing. I will do what I can to uh, uh, lend my experience to the, uh, to the equation. I believe that my experience is somewhat unique. There's not that many people that could have worked at a bank in 1988 and realized it was insolvent. And then also, I'll tell you, that was Canada's largest bank. Oh my God, Canada's largest bank was actually on its way to bankruptcy in 1988. And it was no different than all the banks on Wall Street. So these successive financial crises that I've lived through give me a perspective that anyone who's half my age couldn't possibly have lived through because they weren't alive, okay? like. They weren't 25 years old in 1988. That's how old I was. So hats off to you guys. Hats off to the young guys at uh, Looking Glass Education. Hats off to uh, Blockware, the work that they're doing. Uh, together, we're you know rowing in the same direction. Uh, I believe that we have the right side of the fight. Uh, we are honorable. This Bitcoin community is amazing. But... There will be challenges and education is the key. So circling this all back, just tell the truth. I try and tell the truth all the time. It does offend a lot of people. And I'm sorry for that. But if the truth hurts, you've been living in a bubble for too long. Let's get on board. Learn mathematics for the kids. That means Bitcoin. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Greg. We'll definitely have to do it again at some point. I really, I really appreciate your, uh, your invite. I look forward to uh, crossing paths in person. Uh, keep up the great work. And, uh, and honestly, your questions were awesome. Okay, I really, and this was not rehearsed. These were awesome questions that were not uh, scripted or anything like that. So obviously there's a lot of thought that goes into this and I appreciate being your guest. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks everybody.